Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Timothy Cernak, who is Assistant Professor of Medicinal Chemistry at the University of Michigan. His lab studies the interface of chemical synthesis and computer science. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I want to start with your uh, 2021 paper, reinforcing the supply chain for umifenavir and other antiviral drugs with retrosynthetic software. Uh, you say here the global disruption caused by the 2020 coronavirus pandemic stressed the supply chain of many products, including pharmaceuticals. Multiple drug repurposing studies for COVID-19 are now underway. It has been underway for a while now. Uh, if a winning therapeutic emerges, you say it's unlikely that the existing inventory of the medicine or even the chemical raw materials needed to synthesize it will be available in quantities required. So he is saying here we, we utilize retrosynthetic software to arrive at alternate chemical supply chains for the antiviral drugs, as well as um, so eleven uh, antiviral and anti-inflammatory drugs. So um, I, I was in a pharmaceutical company, Tim, a long time ago, and uh, I was on the business side, so I wasn't a scientist. Uh-huh. Uh, but I have a general idea what you're talking about here, um, and so. um the covid-19 happened um what, what was a drug that was uh, appeared to be a little effective uh, remdesivir yeah remdesivir was definitely one of them uh that we looked at hydroxychloroquine is kind of an interesting <laughs> the famous uh, hydroxychloroquine yeah in the beginning days of the pandemic right nobody knew right it was like I mean, you could have someone on twitter say i think hydroxychloroquine is great and you know <laughs> Yeah, uh so it was a very interesting time. Um that paper was a uh was a very uh interesting scientific journey, I would say. That was easily the most intense period of my scientific career. Uh cuz we we started that on March 20th of uh 2020 when 
you know, we I, we shot our labs on March 13th and then March 20th, we 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 started ramping back up um, for this for this work. Uh, and so it was um, there, there was just so much happening at that time in my life, both professionally and personally um, and happening in the world around us at that at that moment. Um, but it was an opportunity for us to pivot uh, a research project that we were uh, working on in partnership with Millipore Sigma. Um, I should disclose that I, I do receive research funding from Millipore Sigma, and they they um, they uh, market this Cynthia software that we used here. Uh, but um, the you know in, in the same way that we're currently seeing like you know there's like a shortage of computers and electric cars because there's not enough batteries to go in them right so there's like the parts that you need to build the product uh and such is the case with with pharmaceuticals that you know of course we could have the pills we could run out of the pills right um you know re rewind your your mind back to 2020 to spring of 2020 and you know it was it was like unclear you know what the new world was going to look like right i mean like a lot of us were running out of you know cleaning supplies for for our bathrooms and and you know like dried pasta goods so it was kind of a, it was an interesting time and certainly the idea that like a sophisticated product like a pharmaceutical that would you know tackle this new alien virus uh would that of course the supply of that could become quite limited um and so millipore sigma is a uh is, is a leading supplier of chemicals um they supply both uh the the uh the drugs for for research purposes uh, but also the starting materials in quantity for for the preparation of these drugs and so they were quite concerned as a chemical supplier uh in in spring of 2020 you know we don't know which starting materials we're going to get asked for uh, and because it was unclear which drug was going to going to be important, you know, I mean, you, you you in in the popular media, we got to hear about hydroxychloroquine uh, and rem, remdesivir as as repurposed drugs. Of course, now we get to enjoy uh, the new uh, drugs from Merck and Pfizer um, that are uh, are, are uh, you know um, specifically targeted to SARS-CoV-2. But in the early days of the pandemic, it wasn't known uh, which drugs were going to be important. Um, and so at that time, um, in March of 2020, there were dozens of drugs that were undergoing clinical trials for uh, repurposed drugs, right? So drugs that are already on the market for, say, diabetes or anti-infection of, you know, non-SARS-CoV-2 type, um, maybe cancer or something, you know, something not related to CoV-2, but they're biological agents. They're already approved uh, by the FDA or other, other registration uh, bodies. And so humans could get them quickly. Um, but what if we run out, right? What if there's like, so So in March of 2020, there were only 5,000 doses of remdesivir and like, you know, way more than 5,000 people who had COVID infection at that time. So so we need more, right? We need chemical synthesis to bring us more. Um, and so chemical synthesis is this really critical tool that, you know, I hope to talk about a lot today of, of where drugs come from, where everything comes from. It's like the actual making step. So let me, um, from my own understanding, Tim, so, we have a pharmaceutical process. At the end of that process, we get the pill, we get you know, the fully uh, encapsulated product. But there is, mm -hmm. a, there is a process with multiple steps. And um, at the beginning of that process, uh, we have starting materials. And so if, if we need something in high quantities, the, the product at the end, we need high quantities of the raw materials. And if raw materials are not available, if I understand this correctly, Tim, you are essentially creating a different route to to that product with with a different starting material. Is that the way to understand it? Yeah, that's spot on, uh, Gil. I mean, you know, we we like 
to liken the the process of chemical synthesis to Lego, right? And so you know you 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 piece the things that your Lego bits together. Um, the you know rather than the little like you know uh, nub and fitting in the hole of a Lego piece, it's the formation of a chemical bond. And so the cool thing is that all day, uh, every day, chemists are inventing new ways to make chemical bonds. There's new catalysts that will make these bonds. There's new reactions that will make these bonds. And so, you know, a drug that was made in, say, the 1970s or 1980s, we could revisit that today with all the new catalysts and synthetic technology that exists today and find a completely new recipe to get there. We'd arrive at the exact same final product. They're the exact same molecule. They should have the exact same biological effect. But the starting materials that we used to get there are quite different. Um, and so you can imagine in the case of a you know pandemic-induced uh, supply chain shortage that having an alternative recipe that gives that allows you to start from different starting materials but arrive at the same product uh, could be beneficial. Um, and and so, be, uh, sorry, Tim. So this could be a theme even post-pandemic, right? So this uh, gives some flexibility the supply chain, right? If if we have multiple routes to get to the same product, it, it introduces a lot of flexibility to the supply chain. So even post-pandemic, this might be a way to, to think about drug manufacturing. You're, you're exactly right. Um, the, the pandemic aspect of this and, and applying it to uh, the supply chain of COVID um, possible drugs uh, was was obviously a pivot that you know that we not obviously but it was it was a pivot from research we were already doing on improving synthetic efficiency and using uh, data science as a tool to find alternative pathways to to target molecules that we want to make um, and so you know I, I said that all day every day chemists are inventing new reactions to make chemical bonds there's probably a hundred reactions that came out today. Right. If you if you read all the literature that exists, there's you know at least dozens of new reactions that came out today. It's not possible for a human to keep up with all of this literature. Um, we have uh, another body of work that is that tries to explore how many reactions there could be, and you know we don't have an answer to that question, but it's possible the there's a near infinite number of possible reactions, and so so it becomes this big data problem, um, and navigating through all of these reaction rules to towards, uh, you know, of, of course, we want things to be made cheaply, we want them to be made safely. Uh, and so there, there's a lot at play here. And then we need to get back to, you know, a catalog of chemicals, like, you know, what can I actually buy in a bottle? Um, to, to start with, there's only, you know, there's there's about 50 million different chemicals you can buy. Um, and which sounds like a lot, but frankly, it's, it's a very small number. There's an infinite number of molecules that we could make. So, you know, the the um, the, the the big data problem uh, emerges rapidly when you when you look at uh, all the possible reactions you could you could run, all of the possible reagents you can buy, um, and all of the reaction conditions and catalysts you have to stitch these uh, stitch these bonds together to get to a specific product that you want. We're very interested in how to make that process happen more effectively uh, and how how reactions play into this, you know, the reactions that we uh, the the reactions that we we have can make the chemicals that we want. Um, and we're, we're also very interested in inventing new reactions. Um, but um, my, my point is that there's lots of reactions. There's lots of starting materials and it's and it's it's a really big data challenge to try and stitch them all together and find your way through this morass. Yeah, so you have a related paper from 2021, ultra-high throughput experimentation for information-rich chemical synthesis. So you say here, the incorporation of data science is revolutionizing organic chemistry. 
it's becoming increasingly possible to predict reaction outcomes with accuracy, computationally plan new retrosynthetic routes to complex molecules. We talked about that and design molecules with sophisticated functions. It's critical to these developments uh, has been statistical analysis of reaction data. For instance, with machine learning, yet there is very little reaction data available upon which to build models. Reaction data can be mined from the literature, as you mentioned, but experimental data tends to be reported in a text format that's difficult for computers to read. Compounding the issue, literature data are heavily biased toward productive reactions and few negative reaction data points are reported, even though they're critical for training statistical models. So there are a few issues here, Tim. Uh, it, it's <laughs> a very, uh, very interesting and exciting problem. As you say, it's a big data problem. Uh, but computer computers don't understand text uh, material, so you, you have to somehow translate that into a language computers could utilize to build statistical models or machine learning models. And machine learning models typically require both classes of data, uh, both positive and negative classes of data. That's how machine learning models are trained. And so that is also an issue here, right? So it's almost like a cultural change is needed for the industry so that the data can be collected from both angles and can be collected in a form that could be utilized at scale, right? Is that the problem? Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, the um, So there are a few things at play here. Um, so let's just start with this discussion of positive and negative data um, that, you know, historically when I was in graduate school, it was, you know, it was a faux pas to report your negative data, right? If you were to do that, you, your reviewers and your readers would say, oh, this reaction doesn't work, right? I, like, it, and so so there's certainly a bias towards, it's still today it exists that I think, you know, that, that people are biased towards reporting the reactions that work in high yield to showcase, hey, my new catalyst, you know, it, it works in high yield, right? Um, and so it, it is important that we continue to, to push towards this high bar of performance where all reactions are working really well, we can always get a high yield. But that is, you know, I'd say it's it's not consistent with reality um, right now that I think any practicing chemist will tell you that for every working reaction, they ran like maybe a hundred, you know, failed reactions, right? Um, and so, so we do have this disconnect right now. Uh, it, it's being bridged um, in, in, in parts from the efforts of our community, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the reactions that exist in the literature are biased towards those that work. Uh, and, and so there's, so as you, as you rightly point out, a machine learning model wants to look at a body of data and say, you know, these are these are the criteria upon which the reaction works, and these are the criteria upon which the reaction doesn't work. And based on that, I can I can assign descriptors to the data molecules in our instance, uh, and say, okay, when a molecule looks like this, it should work. When a molecule looks like this, it probably won't work. But the machine learning models don't have that data available to them to train on, right? There's no, if, if, if as humans, we have chosen to only publish the reactions that work and the machine learning model wants to know what works and what doesn't work, uh, where's it gonna get that data? So here comes high throughput experimentation as a new tool where it has, it's, it's completely acceptable to, to, to publish what works and what doesn't work. And, and so we've been doing this um, uh, many times over where we, uh, in a high throughput format, uh, can run either a dozen or a hundred or a thousand reactions in a single experiment. 
we can, you know, rather than saying, I'm going to take an electrophile and a nucleophile, think of these as like the two kind of bits of Lego that you want to click together to make your bond. As chemists, we always talk about electrophiles and nucleophiles, and they're the kind of Lego pieces that you bring together. So, um, so in a classic experiment, we might take a flask, we put in one electrophile and one nucleophile and see what happens. Uh, and if it works really well, then we get, you know, maybe an 85% or 95% yield, and we put that in our paper. In a high throughput experiment, we we use an array. Um, hopefully, some of your readers will, or uh, listeners will be familiar with uh, 96 well plates. And so these are very common uh, experimental tools that we use. And so now in a 96 well plate, you have you have an array and you can put a whole bunch of nucleophiles on one axis and a whole bunch of nucleophiles on one axis and capture the whole system. Uh, and so, you know, we, we just report that whether it works or not. Usually about half the plate works and half the plate doesn't. And then, of course, that gives us a really nice training set for machine learning models, because now we are reporting both what works, what didn't work. Uh, and, and so high throughput experimentation is a, is a technology that allows that to happen and something we've been building for a long time now. So um, I, I don't know if it's possible, Tim, but if everybody can share their data from this high throughput experimentation, then it becomes very powerful. Um, I don't know if there is an agency, there's some, some sort of an academic institution that can take a lead on you know, creating sort of a global database where we get information from a variety of sources and that database becomes very powerful in terms of figuring out what could be better, right? I, I would say that we're right at the cusp of that happening. Um, there's, there's a, there's a few, uh, really beautiful efforts. Um, the first that come to mind are uh, the open reaction database or, uh, auto Q chem, um, our, our first, you know, kind of entries in this space. Um, one of the things that, that is happening here is the, the birth of this technology is, is frankly in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, um, as you mentioned, I, I left, uh, a American company, uh, four years ago to come to academia and do this. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's relatively new in an academic setting. Um, I would say that many companies are involved in high throughput experimentation, right? And so they, they recognize the power that this technology can bring to the invention of pharmaceuticals, uh, the invention of materials and agrochemicals too. But, you know, their remit is, uh, on the one hand, every, every you know, true pharmaceutical company has a remit to, to you know, enhance the scientific good. But, you know, Data can be proprietary. It's it's just difficult to find models to easily share this data. So I mean, what we are looking at is at the cusp of a uh, of 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 a revolution really in in this high throughput tech technology. It's relatively new, and so uh, there are definitely efforts to to standardize the reporting of data. Um, we are we are definitely involved. Uh, we uh, we are uh, about to release uh, for for free academic use a software called Factor, which uh, will will standardize the format of uh, of reporting of all this data so that everyone can do it very easily. Um, and uh, but you know the, the the problem one problem that exists is that it's very difficult to get uh, creative people to agree on exactly what a standard mm -hmm. format looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite analogy here is is the ninety six well plate. Um, you know, if, if some of your listeners are familiar with the 96 volt plate or have seen one of these, it's, it is the, you know, kind of the standard vessel for doing experimentation in the biochemical sciences. And we're trying to push its use in organic chemistry. Um, but in the early days of 96 volt, so, so the 96 volt plate was invented in 1950. All right. So, so we've had this tool for, for over 70 years. Um, but it was only relatively recently that there were standards for what a 96 well plate should look like. If you can imagine for like 50 years, uh, 
if if you bought your 96 well plate from one supplier, it had a different shape and a different size than another 96 well plate. And so the beauty of 96 well plates is that you can take them from one instrument and pass them to the other instrument. It doesn't matter where they come from. That wasn't always the case, right? And it took it took a consortium of people to agree on what the standard dimensions of a 96 well plate must look like so that it could pass from instrument to instrument. Uh, it took it took dozens of chemists or scientists uh, 16 years to agree on what that format should look like. And that's kind of where we are right now in terms of data reporting for reactions, because this kind of comes back to to one of the earlier points that you brought up is that the, the current format that's accepted is 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 prose is text you just write it write write your prose um we, we even try to be poetic in the way that we describe <laughs> how we ran the experiment um and so you know i think that, that that has served the community very well for the past several decades but now we're entering this 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 new era where we want our computers to be able to to read reaction data and to learn from them to do machine learning on reaction data and and so prose is not you know appropriate anymore and so so it's it's just switching right now like in the past two to three years it's happening right now i was also wondering tim i don't know if it's possible so once you have the high throughput equipment so you have already taken the capital cost um you would rather i would imagine run it continuously and create data right it's just like a computer you don't want to you know let the computer sit idle if it can do something um, <laughs> You know, is it uh, is it possible to think about it that way? You so uh, yes, um, we uh, we're talking here about automation, and so um, so long term automation. Um, I, uh, I I I I have high excitement for these types of projects. Uh, they are very expensive projects, or they can be very expensive projects. Um, I happen to have the luxury of having graduate students and postdoctoral. Uh, <laughs> Was working with me, um, and so I mean, we we've definitely scoped out, you know, uh, weighing out powders, right? So weighing out powders is like a, a very simple operation. Um, it, it costs millions of dollars to automate this, to have a robot do this, because if you can imagine the diversity of chemical. I earlier said that there's about 50 million different chemicals you can buy. They have very different properties, right? Some of them, some of them are big chunky crystals. Some of them are like brick dust. Some of them are like, you know, light fluffy powder. Some of them are like a wax. Some are like a honey. Some are oils. Some are syrups. And so it's just very difficult to have a robot that can like, you know, handle all of this. Um, whereas a human can do it, no problem, right? So, so we choose in 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 my research program to automate what what ex, what you know enhances our ability to be scientifically creative, uh, but we don't try to automate what what we can do readily by hand, um, unless it really uh, gives us that you know that that extra edge or or we we do a lot of automation, but um, but what you're describing, you know, full automation, no human human engagement, it is doable. Uh, I would say that we're on, on the, you know, that I would call that a pretty cutting edge project. Um, and so, you know, um, we, we're very interested in inventing new reactions. Um, I, you know, I have PhD students who are all trying to do something very different, something very creative. And so the more that it, one thing, one rule that I like to abide by is that, you know, automation and flexibility are often at odds with each other. And so if you want to be very flexible in your science, it limits the degree to which you can automate. Um, so we're very excited about automation. We definitely will set up 1,500 reactions and and let you know let a robot like analyze through those overnight. Uh, but um, but we do you know we we try to 
we try to really uh, embrace the human's engagement in this process. We we don't we're not trying to automate away human creativity or or human engagement. And I think that there, there's certainly an aspect of using your eyes and and you know um, and and you know observing what's going on in the flask with your hands uh, that that um, that is just still still quite difficult for a robot to handle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking more like a screening process. So given an objective function, given a requirement, and given a plethora of starting materials, the machine could select a dozen possibilities that I would imagine the human um, would ultimately make a decision on. So a lot of the, I don't want to call it grunt work, but a lot of the you know um, repeated work uh, could be delegated to the machine, I would think. It, you're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, um, I don't, I don't want to give at all the impression that I dislike automation. I love automation. We're very, we're very engaged in automation. Um, and and exactly as you say, I mean, so this is one of our our favorite things to do, um, is to uh, to focus on a on a particular area of reaction space. Uh, you know, we want to make this type of bond. We want to use these types of catalysts. Uh, and I think what you'll find is that the number of parameters that's involved in 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 a really focused objective like that uh, will still give you millions or billions of reasonable experiments to try. So uh, we we very frequently will will first map out that space and say, okay, here's our objective. This is the bond we are trying to make. Uh, and what are like the reasonable experiments we can do? Uh, and then how do we uh, you know how do we kind of chug our way through that? I think what we'll, what we have found though is that it's often the case that we do three rounds of experimentation in that space, and our and the data that we collect changes our perspective so much on what you know. Even though, like you know, it might be set up to imagine ten rounds of experimentation. By the time we get to the third round, it's like, oh, there's all this stuff we hadn't even thought of um, that now needs to be incorporated, and we are already at millions or billions of experiments. And then so it just like rapidly, rapidly grows. Um, and the machine learning aspect, so you could think about, I would imagine reinforcement learning type mechanisms here too. So sort of a feedback coming back from the human to sort of direct, um, I mean, a comprehensive search of the design space, I think would be very, very costly. Uh, but if you can direct the machine to favorable spots, then perhaps that that process could uh, could get to, get to a result a lot faster. Absolutely. So, so uh, this is happening. It's happening in our labs and in other labs. Um, uh, and uh, and 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 I would say it's very much the cutting edge. The uh, we have we have a paper that that was recently released where we showed that the order of reagent addition was critical to the success of the reaction. And that's a little bit difficult to encode into your your prior thinking. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, if you just if you so, um, I've talked about how we have an electrophile and nucleophile. We like to think of them as like a blue piece of Lego and a yellow piece of Lego, uh, and you want to form, you know, you want to make, you want to click those two together. So there's a reaction arrow that takes the two pieces of Lego and unites them into that chemical bond is formed. And above that reaction arrow, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So there's a you know there, there's a there's a temperature that we heat the reaction at. There's a time that we leave the reaction for. Um, sadly, we're learning that the rate that we stir the reaction with the magnetic stirrer is very important for most reactions. It's sad because it's hard to, you know, want to think about that. 
Um, and, uh, and, and then there's, then there's, there's a, very frequently, there's a catalyst, there's a ligand that attaches to that catalyst, there's a co-catalyst and there's a co-ligand that adds it onto that. Um, and then there's either an acid or a base, um, and a few other additives to kind of, you know, make, make the secret sauce work. Uh, and then there's a solvent that kind of dissolves it all and, and, you know, kind of makes it like a nice kind of bubbling purple liquid. Um, so the, I mean, the, there's there's an there's an enormous amount of what we call reactivity cliffs in this space mm -hmm. that if you choose any one of those parameters wrong you get nothing um and when you get nothing it's you know it's a little bit like being out in the open ocean and trying to you know like it, like we we absolutely apply machine learning to these tasks um we, i mean the bar is high for us because we're trying to discover new types of reactivity and explore new reactions reactions that don't exist um a lot of my in my prior life i did a lot of uh work exploring re classic reactions like the amide coupling um where you take an amine and an acid and you make an amide bond um and uh and so that's like a well-known reaction there's other like really classic ones like the suzuki coupling these are and uh the the buckwald hartwig coupling are um, you know, Nobel Prize winning or, or soon to be Nobel Prize winning reactions that are used all the time. And so we have like, I mean, when you're exploring in that space, it's not really like you're out in the deep ocean and, you know, you 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 make a wrong step and, you, you know, you don't know where to go next. Like if you make a wrong step playing in those spaces, there's a lot that is known about the mechanism, about the reagents that work, about like what temperature regime you should be in, what types of solvents are OK for these reactions. So you have some like knowledge to go on. Um, but for um, for new reactions, um, I, I mentioned the amine acid coupling uh, to make the amide bond is the most popular reaction in, in all of uh, organic chemistry. We're trying to find new ways to click together amines and acids. And, and here we are frequently in, in a very unknown space. And so while we are interested in, in building out a big, you know, reasonable uh, experimental space and then automating our way through the, the navigation of that space, we're just very aware that there are that you know we are out in the open ocean, and so oftentimes we need to do um, some very careful reconnaissance uh, or um, uh, you know kind of cut our exploration short um, and go in a completely new direction because there are all these reactivity cliffs. You have your electrophile, you have your nucleophile, you have the reaction arrow to make the product, um, and you have a solvent and a temperature and a and a catalyst and a ligand and a base and a co-catalyst and and each one of those um, could be reasonably selected from the 50 million, uh, um, you know, commercially available compounds. So, so you get this combinatorial problem where um, where it's very easy to take a misstep. And so, the, I think the thing that is not really well appreciated right now is that reaction space in organic chemistry is very bumpy. Um, and so, it's very easy to to find, you know, yourself skittering down a cliff. Um, where you're at a 0% yield, coming back to what we were earlier talking about, right? It's like, we don't talk about our 0% yields, but any any practicing organic chemist knows that like all the reactions you run give a 0% yield, right? Almost almost no reactions really work. A, a few of them do, but it's, it's a very cliffy uh, place that we're walking around. Um, and so it's very easy to make a very subtle change. You know, you, you turn the temperature up 20 degrees and the yield goes down to 0%. Um, and so, uh, so we, we don't yet have the data lake available to us uh, to, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to make meaningful um, predictions uh, out of nowhere. We're, we're getting better. I wouldn't say we're even good yet, but we as a community are getting better at casting a net over a new area of reaction space 
um, or a well-known area of reaction space and then navigating through that using machine learning. But that's I, I still think that's very much the frontier of where we are as a field. Uh, and so so we're learning how to predict how to invent reactions in that space with the, I think the ultimate goal of, of, of the entire organic chemistry field right now is to invent reactions basically out of thin air. Yeah, this uh, is unrelated, Tim. This uh, makes sense why we haven't been able to create a biological system from chemicals. <laughs> uh, it, it is mm -hmm. not just combining things. It is actually a variety of permutations on top of it. Everything has to be perfect for something to emerge. And uh, probably that's the reason life is uh, quite rare, <laughs> perhaps yeah, so in the universe. You're bringing up the notion of the origin of life. I love it. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, like, how fragile a system, right? That just like you know, that like just the right amount of photons hit that you know that geochemical catalyst at just the right moment um, to bring together you know the the uh, the the you know the 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 um, the chemicals that became I don't know the first sugar or the first base pair or whatever. Um, and but it, but how fragile it was, right? I mean, it took billions of years to. Uh, to, to for everything to line up just right. And and I mean, we, we are thinking of reactions of about that complexity, right? Like the, you know, basically the, the um, you know, we are interested in making sugars. We are interested in making heterocycles that look like adenine and guanine. Um, and, you know, and we're, we're definitely interested in making amino acids. And so if you, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you bring up the origin of life. Um, that it, and, and I mean, the recipes, um, that, that existed in, you know, prebiotic earth of, uh, geochemicals, uh, high intensity light, heat pressure, uh, and, you know, like pH gradients, that that's what we're doing in the lab. We're basically, you know, we're trying to, uh, recreate it, but, but I, I would say, you know, it, I love what you've brought up here for me and thinking about the origin of life and, and how this this comes together. I think we we tend to think of it in a very industrialized way, right? It's like, you know, society needs this type of bond, right? Like society needs more carbon-carbon bonds. And so we really want to focus on ways that we could, you know, make carbon-carbon bonds that society needs. Uh, but, um, but, you know, nature is doing this all the time. Nat nature is so good at making carbon-carbon bonds, I wish. I wish we had a tiny glimpse of what nature can pull off in terms of making. No, I was struck by, I, I, I don't know much about this, Tim. I was struck by what you said in terms of the temperature, the even the, the stirring motion. Uh, everything has to be so perfect for, for something to emerge. Uh, tells me that even if you have all the environmental factors right, you still may not get anything because, you know, some, some factors, some parameter has to be precisely right for that to happen. And that, I mean, I, I haven't really thought about it. You know, people have been thinking about life emerging from a set of chemicals. That is not the case. It's it's sort of set of chemicals in a matrix of variety <laughs> of factors that we haven't really even have a clue about. Um, so that makes it a very, very challenging problem, I think. Uh, absolutely. I mean, so um, uh, there's a lot of discussion around chemical space, like all the chemicals that could exist. And I've kind of I've alluded to this a little bit, um, when, you know, and, and, and then as as practicing th synthetic chemists, we like to think about all the recipes of reactions that could make those chemicals exist. And, you know, all those chemicals are, you know, they're they're, they're going to help humanity in the future. There's going to you know, they're going to 
improve our access to food and and certainly you know medicine I think is 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 uh, somewhere that enjoys a lot of uh, engagement from the organic chemistry community. Um, and but so you can imagine you know a, a pill that um, you know a, a simple case would be a pill that you want to take once a day, right? Because I mean I'm 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 currently on uh, antibiotics. I got a I got a tick bite. Um, and, uh, and so I'm taking doxycycline right now. I have to take it twice a day. It's a pain in the ass. I cannot remember to do anything twice a day. Right. So I don't want to do something like once in the morning, once at night. Um, so, uh, so I'd like to take one pill a day. Um, and, uh, but, but that you can imagine another, um, type of pill that you want to take once every hour, right. Or like, uh, not once every hour, but like a sleeping pill you want to take, you know, you want to take it you don't want that last all day, all day, right. You'll sleep the day away. You go to, you know, so you want, you want a pill that lasts for like four hours. And so, um, so the difference between the the four hour pill and the one day pill, or you know, with doxycycline, I'm taking eight hour, twelve hour pills, um, is 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 very subtle changes in chemical space. Um, and so the so I mean, they, they, this is we're now getting into medicinal chemistry and pharmacokinetics, and I'm and I'm very excited about these uh, technologies or these these fields as well. Uh, but you know, the 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 difference between uh, a four hour uh, uh, lifetime pill and a twenty four hour lifetime pill. Uh, is is oftentimes just changing a carbon to a nitrogen, right? And so, so there's so so this is chemical space. There's a huge amount of investment in chemical space because, of course, some of these you know some of these single molecules in chemical space turn out to be multi-billion-dollar projects, um, and uh, and 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 they. Um, uh, uh, they, they, they more importantly save human lives, right? So, so getting the atom placement just right can save a human life. Um, and, and, you know, give our customers, uh, if we're thinking as a pharmaceutical company, a really enjoyable user experience. I'm frustrated that I have to take two pills a day. Um, and so, you know, maybe a pharmaceutical company could invent for me a once daily, uh, doxycycline, um, uh, dosing regimen, but, um, but all of this is chemical space and this is well known. What we're doing that's a little bit different is looking at reaction condition space. And so you alluded to this, you know, this notion that like the stars have to align with just the right stirring rate and just the right temperature. And you have to pick just the right arrangement of atoms on your catalyst and on your base so that things work. Um, so not only is there this infinite menu of products that we want to make that would be either the once daily pill or the four hour uh, pill um, that could come from, you know, the 50 million chemicals that we can buy. But there's the there's the reaction that that has to, you know, that 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 turns these two things into this one thing um, and forms that chemical bond. And it's a really, really uh, rocky terrain that 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 goes above that reaction arrow of uh of you know picking the right temperature the right stirring rate and all that but we but i don't know we, we we're, we're so excited about our opportunity to invent new chemical bonds um you know from from our, our favorite thing to do is to look at you know which of those 50 million chemicals are are the most broadly distributed uh and then and then find ways to make the the chemical bonds that society needs most uh, carbon carbon bonds are a great one so i mean one of our main you know areas of interest right now is taking amines and acids because there's so many commercially available amines and acids and trying to find ways to make carbon carbon bonds from them uh and uh, and so we're having a lot of fun there but we do a lot of experiments that fail we i mean you know if we if if there were a journal that only reported zero percent yields we could publish in it every day um because we you know we, we run lots of these experiments that uh that don't work um we use these the, we use our high throughput experimentation tools to um rather than run one experiment or or you know Two experiments at a time will run 
dozens to hundreds or thousands. Um, and then we we hope to find that kind of diamond in the rough that by by you know by by scanning more reaction experimental space at a time, uh, we hope that we can find like a you know just that little uh, peak on 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 this really uh, rocky terrain that will give us um, the uh, the reaction conditions we need. Yeah, so I don't know much about it, Tim, but I was wondering. So this combinatorial explosion <laughs> that you have in terms of finding something. I wanted underneath that if there is some sort of physics explanation. Um, so empirically, you know, it, it just looks like such a huge design space. Uh, it's really difficult to navigate the design space. But there could be some physics that is more approachable underneath that, perhaps, I wonder. Yeah. What, you're you're on to something here, Gil. Um, so the so so yes, there there is. Um, there's uh, the um, uh, so we we call it density functional theory or or DFT is is one of the tools that one would use here. Uh, or well, the physics you're 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 asking for is quantum mechanics. Uh, and so density functional theory or DFT is a way to do quantum mechanical calculations. So if you can recall, we, we don't have the computational power to solve the uh, Schrodinger equation for hydrogen, right? So for just H bound to H, um, we don't, you know, we can't do that, right? So, so, I mean, maybe once we have quantum computers that that's on the table, right? But, but right now we don't have the computational power to solve, to know exactly where the electrons are going to be um, on just hydrogen. Density functional theory allows us to approximate that, but it's still quite computationally expensive. Um, and now we want to talk about remdesivir, right? Which is, you know, or, or taxol or doxycycline. These are big molecules. They are much, much bigger than, uh, than, than H2. Um, and so solving the Schrodinger equation for such a molecule is, is, is you know, hopefully our grandchildren get to enjoy uh, such technologies, but they're, they're not yet available. Um, but you, I mean, you highlight, um, the, the physics are known, right? So the, I mean, we understand it's it's quantum mechanics that will explain all of the events of bonding um, can be broken down into this. Uh, but but recall back to what I've been saying that we have an electrophile, we have a nucleophile, we have a catalyst and a co-catalyst, and and these things are it's a Rube Goldberg machine. There's like you know there's there's 18 different steps that our nucleophile and electrophile go through before they get to the product. Um, and so you know there's there's there um, we we don't even draw it in the reaction typically, but there's a proton that's like shuttling around, and sometimes things are protonated, sometimes they're deprotonated. I talked about how we put a base into our reaction because because sometimes you know the base needs to come in and like pull off the proton for one mechanistic step and then place it back on for the next one. And so it's really a miracle that reactions work at all. But as I told you, it's probably been dozens to 100 new reactions reported today, right? I mean, because chemists all around the world are, are very eager to find that new set of reaction conditions that works uh, for all types of chemicals. Um, and uh, and so, you know, there, you know, so there, so so I've highlighted, you know, that chemical space is near infinite and and within there you can find your your four hour pill or your 24 hour pill that you know you know hopefully we can find like the the pill you only have to take once for your life right and then and then you are never going to get cancer you're never going to get alzheimer's right that is that is hopefully part of the future of medicine that will get there and hopefully it's a molecule it will be a molecule that can achieve this um and uh, and then but then there's an, you know, there's 50 million building blocks we get to choose from. There will be more. Our grandkids will get to enjoy 50 billion building blocks, um, you know, 
Um, uh, the, the the largest collection of the building blocks in the world right now is in is in Kiev in 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 the Ukraine. And so so as chemists, we're all very worried for for this this very important. Uh, bless you. Um, and um, and so uh, so so there's uh, there's you know there's there's all the building blocks we have. Um, and then, you know, I, I highlighted that there's many mechanistic reaction steps that one needs to go through to unite the nucleophile and the electrophile to make the product that will hopefully be the cure for Alzheimer's. And we need to pick just the right catalyst and temperature and stirring rate to make that happen. So so it's the rules and the logic behind it are are almost two centuries old. I mean, this field of chemical synthesis has, is almost 200 years old. And but we're we're not we're not yet there. So I mean, there's too much data, but machine learning is helping us for sure. Um, I think we're you know I, I, anyone that tells you that chemistry is nearly solved and machine learning is gonna is like fix it all, they're they're totally lying to you. They like it's not gonna happen in my lifetime. I believe I believe that that you know there's too much to explore, but um, but yet machine learning helps us to to um, to quickly navigate focused areas of this experimental space, and so we're having a lot of fun exploring its its role there. Yeah, it's an exciting area. So I want to finish up with uh, another really interesting paper <laughs> uh, from uh, just recently, uh, molecular sonification for molecule to music information transfer. You say organic, organic chemical structures encode information about a molecule's atom and bond arrangement. The most established way to encode a molecular structure is through line drawing, although other representations based on graphs, strings, one hot encoded labels or fingerprint arrays are critical to the computational study of molecules. Here we show that music is a highly dimensional information storage medium that can be used to encode molecular structure. That is really interesting, Tim. So, so how do you use music to encode molecular structure? Yeah, um, this one has been incredibly fun uh, and is. Um, uh, yeah, it's it, it's um, it, we, you know we we opened quite a can of worms with this paper, and 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 there's so much that we are currently exploring. The idea comes from uh, having worked with these strings for the longest time. So I, you know, hopefully you've got the impression that I'm interested in working with computers as I do chemistry. Um, when I studied chemistry, it was all done at the chalkboard, right? You would go up to the chalkboard and draw in your atoms and the bonds between them. And I still love to do that. Um, I have installed old school chalkboards in my labs because I think the chalkboard is a very important place to, to brainstorm and discuss. Uh, but, you know, so, so that's like one way that we interact with, with molecules. Um, as we do all this machine learning research, we tend to use uh, a special, uh, string representation called a smiles string and so this is basically because the computer isn't a chalkboard right i mean the computer wants to wants to read text um but not prose that we talked about earlier it's, it's a smiles is a very specific way to talk about a molecular structure um and uh and 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 have the computer understand it so i can type in a smile string into a computer and it will draw for me the exact chemical structure that I would then go draw on on the on the chalkboard. Not only will the computer draw it for me, but the computer understands it. Right. The problem is that I, can, I like as a chemist, I've been studying chemistry for a long time. I can't look at a smile string and really tell what it is, and I certainly can't like manipulate it in in a way that I want um, and have it turn into something new. Um, and uh, and and so you know, I, we got to thinking about how music is is a very 
tactile experience. Music is a very, you know, you have a keyboard, you have a, you have an instrument where you play it with your hands, you play it with your fingers, um, and and um, you know you manipulate it um, uh, in a very tactile way. Uh, and so so we you know we we had spent so much time turning molecules into dots, molecules into you know graphs, and molecules into like histograms to to do our analyses. We're like, what you know. What if we could turn it into something that was more dimensional and something that was really creative? Um, and so, uh, so we take the information of a molecule and we turn it into musical information. I'll try to, um, I'll try to play for you something um, off my phone. I don't know if it'll work, um, but so this is coming through. Yeah. So this is the um, this is the chemical structure of vitamin B12. Uh, turned into a, a jazzy little riff, um, and so we can feed this into our into our system and pull out the the exact structure of vitamin B12. Um, we can do this for many, um, you know, any molecule really uh, is working. Um, and um, it, it, the beauty is that um, you know that you can you can create in this way. Um, that you know we we can go to the keyboard and we can jam out a tune and a new molecule will come out. Um, the similarity of that melody to an existing molecule will determine how similar the, the new molecule is. So, so we can take a song um, of, of a molecule and we can change one note um, and that will then somewhere in the molecule rip out a bond um, or make a subtle change to it. Um, we, we base this on a, on a really fun algorithm called selfies uh, from uh, from uh, you know my, my my hero Alan Asperguzik and and his incredible team up in Toronto. Uh, but um, but we we this allows us to generate new music um, or new molecules. Um, and so you know it started um, it started as a question around molecules and information and and you know how how we how we're encoding molecular information. We do so much grat like just you know drawing scatter plots of molecules is very important for our research. We do that all the time. And so it's like, okay, here's one way that we're like, why are we looking at molecules as colored dots on a scatter plot? Why not listen to them as, as, you know, information encoded music. Um, and, uh, so you can imagine we're having a lot of fun. Uh, one corner of the lab is totally, um, filled with keyboards and DJ equipment and guitar pedals. Um, and, um, we're, we're exploring, you know, I mean, our dream is that, you know, exactly as we we're talking about, I need, I, I'm a, I'm a medicinal chemist. I have a four hour pill and I want to turn it into a 24 hour pill. Right. And so I'm going to go to the chalkboard and I'm going to, I'm going to take all of my knowledge in pharmacokinetics and in atom arrangements and in chemical synthesis and like erase this nitrogen and turn it into a carbon. Um, and, and, you know, but really it would be cool to do that in the way that we create music, right? It'd be cool to be sitting at like a big, you know, um, mixing board and, and turning the knobs that say, okay, I want, I want the solubility of this drug to go up a little bit. I want this to be a little bit more potent against the, the, you know, the enzyme that we're, that we're trying to target. Um, and I want it to have like a little bit less um, exposure in the liver uh, because we're seeing toxicity there. And so, you know, just imagining that as a very tactile experience where you had like, you know, rather than rather than going through 18 billion spreadsheets and, you know, kind of sort of understanding what you're doing, but like really what you want to do is you just want to tweedle the knobs and just say, all right, like I want to turn up this knob. I'm going to slide in a bit more, you know, like um, solubility and a bit a bit less uh, toxicity into my molecule. Um, so 
we got a long way to go before we get there. We're having a lot of fun in the journey. Um, and the other thing that we've learned is that musicians are latching onto this like you wouldn't believe. I mean, you know, for hopefully, you know, you 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 enjoyed our melody of vitamin B12. All these mo molecules sound great. Uh, we have a lot of different musical tastes in our lab. So some people don't like certain songs and, you know, some some um, depending on like different cultural references, uh, we, we can we can adjust the music um, accordingly. But but, um, you know, imagine. Imagine, you know, you're, you're, you're like, you're falling in love and you want to write a song about that moment, right? I mean, maybe you think about oxytocin that's circulating through your body as, as you're falling in love. And so you could type in oxytocin into our algorithm and get out a new melody. And that could then serve as an impetus for, for, you know, a song about that moment in your life as one area that we're excited about. Yeah. I was also thinking um, this, this might, uh, this might also be amenable to sort of unsupervised machine learning. Uh, essentially, if you don't have labeled data and you have this musical notes or musical constructs, perhaps pattern finding on that data could be quite interesting, right? Um, even if you don't have any ingoing hypothesis, the machine could create some hypotheses from, from that type of data, potentially. There's no question. There's a, there is a huge body of um, machine learning and AI for generating music, and and we we were unaware of that when we began this project. We are deeply aware of it now, and it's so there, there's a whole community of AI for music. Think, I mean, you know, think about where where AI starts, right? It's it's in image recognition because there's so many images on the on the internet, right? There's tons of music out there, right? So we we talked earlier about how there's not much reaction data, or there's not much molecular data that at least isn't tied up in proprietary databases but there's so much music out there that we that we can enjoy so um so we're so we're, we're interested in how this paper will help us to bridge into uh, we've already been borrowing musical algorithms to develop new reactions which we couldn't do before but you know we're, or or we're just completely unaware that these algorithms existed um you know you, you mentioned deep learning and, and so this one of our earliest experiments was to train models on music train models on on molecules and try and blend them together uh that was very early and and we you know we 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 made a mess and we had to take a step back we're, we're looking at it now but um you know we we would get like um i think we were anticipating that melodies would come and they and they they surely did but the thing we didn't anticipate was like the the breaks in music so so we would get like a 30 second musical register with like two notes it would just be like beep, and then just like long pause for the longest time and like some new some new notes. So, um, so there was uh, there, there. There's a lot to learn in this space, um, and we're 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 you know obviously we're having a lot of fun with it and uh, generating you know a, a lot of new connections and building new networks with uh, making new friends in this space. So it's it's been great. Um, but it, you know it, it's taught us a lot about the way we're thinking about drug discovery and and reaction uh, invention. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit like the grand unification attempts in physics, Tim. So. Uh, music is something fundamental. You're sort of using music to unify all sorts of classes of chemicals because they will all foundationally could have a music. Um, I mean, the same thing, you know, uh, string theory is sort of <laughs> in, the, in that direction to say there is something foundational uh, to all the stuff that we see and uh, that might help us to understand it more deeply. And it's this really interesting direction. Um, I don't know much about it, but it sounds quite uh, quite exciting. <laughs> there's a, there's no right answer in this space, so we we try not to have too many rules in this space. In, in in organic chemistry, there's a lot of 
you know, right and wrong answers. But in this particular space, um, there's not a lot of rules that we have to follow. So we're, we're having fun. Excellent. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me, Tim. This was uh, this was great. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. You know, um, I, I have a five year old daughter who I just um, recently introduced to the arcade while her mother was traveling and um, she she was playing a ski ball where you throw the balls into like a little hole and you win tickets that you can win a teddy bear. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and um, I, I told her I lied that my wife is really, really good at ski ball. Um, <laughs> she's not. But it, she's good. She's good. But anyways, they just got home. And so my daughter's very excited to go see how good my wife is at ski ball um, and hopefully win a big teddy bear. So that's what's on my docket now. Um, and uh, thank you so much for, for, for you know, your giving me a chance to share our research. Absolutely. Yeah, have fun. Thanks again. Okay. Take care, Gail. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.